Greetings, and thank you for listening today. In this episode, number 19, Tony Chapman describes us all as mostly good-hearted people with big blind spots, particularly regarding systemic racism. Through this conversation, I hope we will each better recognize our own blind spots and then improve our awareness in those areas using some of Tony's suggestions. I want to remind and encourage your use of our self-recording feature at the top of our website at myawakeningpodcast.com. We remain excited about hearing your questions and comments for our guests or myself through using this interactive tool. Please know that none of your recorded content will be shared without your permission. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome, Tony, and thank you for being our guest today on My Awakening Podcast. Sure, Joe. Thanks for having me. Before we dive into content, would you please tell us a bit about yourself, including how your career shifted to becoming a um, keynote speaker and trainer, and uh, how you're assisting your clients currently today? Sure. I think there's you know a few things that are probably relevant in that part of the conversation, so I grew up in Michigan, only child, went to college on an academic scholarship for a specialized form of chemical engineering. So when I graduated, you know, from a a few friends of ours, of mine, we decided to start volunteering, mentoring at-risk youth in what was then Cabrini-Green Youth Program. It was Cabrini Green Projects in Chicago at the time were the second largest housing projects in the country. And so we would go there on Sundays after church and spend some time. And it was a fascinating experience. But one of the things, I mean, there's tons of lessons from it, but one of the things that happened is there was a, a young gentleman, young boy I took a liking to, his name was O.C. And so O.C. and I would spend time together and one day I saw him just really down. And that was something he just never was. He wasn't one of these kids who was up and down or emotional. He was just always up. This kid had that it factor that you all can hear about. And so he was down and, you know, I'm just like, hey, so Osi, you okay? He goes, yeah, I'm all right. I'm like, no, you're clearly not okay. So I pulled him out of the program, took him over to the Seward Park gym. And we just began shooting basketball. And I kept asking, so what's going on? What's wrong? And and finally, he said, you know, well, my mom's gone. And I said, so you mean she died? He goes, no, 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 she didn't die. But what he was really explaining to me is that she would at times binge on drugs and just vanish for days at a time. And so, you know, he was stuck taking care of his, you know, one-year-old brother. Now, the problem is that O.C. was six. And so in my mind, I'm sitting here grasping, here you have this kid who has the ultimate it factor, right? He, he is the kid who, who you go, and this kid can make it in life given the right opportunities. And yet yeah. he can't even go to school because he's at home taking care of his younger brother. And, you know, th- that just struck me in such a way. I didn't realize in the moment how much it resonated with me. But you know, I went back to work the next week and, you know, taking care of clients and working on a patent and all this other stuff. But in the back of my mind, 
I'm thinking of this kid. And I just, I began to lose my taste for corporate America. Success was not as important as impact. And so, you know, less than a year later, my wife and I, we left our well-paying corporate jobs and we began to work in faith-based nonprofit. And we just wanted to change the world. And so that was the beginning of my transition. The second major event happened after we spent a decade in that, burned out, started a business, realized I wanted to speak. That's a whole different story. And so I was started speaking professionally in 2006. And somewhere around, you know, 2008, clients started asking me if I would do diversity training. And I said, no, nah, it's not something I want to spend my time on. And I'm sure we'll probably talk about more of the whys as we get in this conversation. But I was really struck by certain world events. I was struck by Trayvon Martin. I was struck by Ferguson. But Tamir Rice was a big one. You know, you literally have a kid who's sitting in the park. The police come and execute. There's, it's, it's not, that's not even debatable what happened. There was no um, fear or, and I can get into details about that at some point. But it, it was literally an execution. And not only watching the police do that with no repercussions, but watching society turn on a young kid playing in the park with toy guns, which every kid does. And so I decided to really shift my business. I wasn't going to stop talking about leadership. I was in the process of writing a book. I wasn't going to stop talking about some of the topics, but I decided I wanted to really dive into this idea of diversity and inclusion, but from the standpoint of unconscious bias. And this was at a point where unconscious bias was not really a hot topic, but I just decided I'm not an activist. I'm not an organizer, but I have a platform. I have a level of success, but I also have a social responsibility to do something different with this world. And so, you know, those are probably two of the primary events that got me to where I am right now. How long had you been in corporate America before that first uh, transition happened for you? Not long, maybe five years. Okay. And then you spent about 10 years in the nonprofit setting before you started speaking professionally. And well, I spent 10 years in nonprofit. Then I got out, started a business. You know, I probably, there's probably a four to five year gap. Okay. Before I actually started speaking professionally. Well, it is my hope that your sharing with us today will provide some useful tools for myself and our listeners to become more active participants in anti-racist efforts in our own communities. We will focus our conversation today on why have white Americans been mostly unaware of such a pervasive issue as systemic racism and why we need to even be talking about something that is so painfully obvious to our fellow Black citizens. Can you please provide some of your perspective on this question? People don't pay a lot of attention to things that don't acutely affect them, right? Like yeah. racism has a weekly impact on my life. It just does in ways that are, in ways that are so profound that I can distinctly remember the moments where it's not there. Like huh. It's that 
that normal. But if you've never experienced the repercussions of it and it doesn't impact you, then the question is, how much do you really care, right? Right now, India is going through a disaster in terms of COVID. I mean, they're, they're running out of oxygen tanks. I mean, people are literally, one of my wife's coworkers was trying to buy an oxygen tank for her mother on the black market for $1,000, right? I mean, it's that bad. And yet, that we're far removed from it. So right. most Americans don't think about it. It's like it doesn't impact us. We think about the things that acutely impact us. And I think that that's, that's the first thing. You know, Martin Luther King talked about we, lived in, we live in two Americas. And I think that there is this reality that your American experience and my American experience are just incredibly different. But the bigger concern is or the bigger issue is not only are they different, you're far less likely to be aware of my experience than I am to be aware of yours. And, and so part of that does start off with, you know, if it doesn't hurt you, why care? You know, I think that's a big part of it. So there's a sense of challenge for myself, I guess, to hear you say that is recognizing that. So I'm, I'm part of the problem in some way. And uh, I would like to become part of the solution. I think that's true for many of our listeners. And I guess that's what I'm hoping we can unpack a little bit today is, are you noticing or feeling any sense of change for the positive at all since George Floyd, let's say, specifically? I think that there's some movement. I think, you know, if I were to be honest, and it's not just about me in terms of my career, but also just observing the world i think what's actually happening is you know if you look at the continuum from you know racist to anti-racist and you can put whatever race you want to put in in any of those ends of the continuum i think we're losing the middle ground so i think it's harder to be so the question i was asking earlier you know how can you be unaware it's harder now to be completely unaware Right. It, it's in our yeah. face. Yeah. It's harder to just <laughs> say, I, I, you know, I didn't notice. Now, you may not notice the intricacies of it. You may not notice, you know, how it impacts someone on a daily basis, but it becomes hard not to notice, you know, police brutality, the unjust criminal justice system, discrepancies in education, discrepancies in health care, financial discrepancies. I mean, you kind of go across the board. But I think what's happening is with that awareness, you're losing the people who are just like, I can just kind of go about my life and pretend this isn't here. People are almost being forced to choose sides. And in some ways, that's a good thing, right? I mean, sometimes I'm surprised by the side people choose, but people are just becoming more polarized. And I think that's in some ways important because now we kind of know what the work becomes, you know, do I think that there's been a, a big change? Part of me wants to say no, but I have to say yes. You know, honestly, I have to, because last year, never in my lifetime 
has there been such a multiracial movement for racial equality, right? If you look at the Black Lives Matter marches, they were multiracial. They weren't just all black people. You know, that's probably closer to what happened in the civil rights movement. It was a multiracial thing, although some of them were clearly more black than others. But, you know, I have to acknowledge that, you know, I participated in some marches and, you know, here I am walking down this, walking down Adam Clayton Powell Boulevard, you know, talking to a, a dude in an Iron Maiden shirt with a Black Lives <laughs> Matter uh, sign. And we're talking, truthfully, we're talking about Black Lives Matter and Iron Maiden, you know, yeah. but it's, it, it's something that you, you would not have seen pre-George Floyd. And so I think that it would be, I think that it would be a denial of reality to say is not changing. But then, you know, when you start talking about actually moving the needle, you know, it's going to be a slow process. And I do understand that. Have you felt uh, in your... Um presentations that you've done and all of the interactions you've had with corporate and institutional audiences that you um, have sensed along the way, let's say before George Floyd, that there was any kind of hunger or interest in uh, this idea of becoming uh, more on the anti-racist side of the continuum uh, for your white audiences, do you, did you sense any of that? Or do you think it was just a, a switch that kind of turned on with this horrible video that we were all uh, faced to see uh, on the news with George Floyd's murder? I think there was a hunger to have a conversation and a hunger to address it in companies and organizations, but companies weren't as motivated to spend the money to do it. And that's actually feedback I've gotten from some of the people who've been pushing to do these types of trainings and have these kind of conversations because my slate was pretty busy before George Floyd talking about bias. And I am normally, normally the only black person in the room or, you know, one of two or three. And so there is a desire to have this conversation without question. I think it, it was though from the decision-making standpoint for an organization now they had to say, okay, this, this is more than just a social issue. This is a, a business issue that I can no longer ignore. And now I have to be willing to put some funds behind it. Could you share just a bit about your pushback, I guess, that you personally had in the way that diversity training was done and your original reluctance to tackle uh, that sort of training without it being on your, on your grounds? Well, I think there's multiple things. We talked about one of them, and I'll make sure I cover that as well. But, you know, there are a good three or four reasons why I didn't want to talk about diversity training. You know, number one, I knew because it wasn't even on my <laughs> website or any of my brochures or anything else, people wanted me to talk about diversity because I'm Black. You know, it's pretty, pretty much that simple. That's the stereotype and the 
and how we're profiled to this is what black speakers should talk about, not leadership, not other things. We want you to talk about diversity training. So I didn't want to be pigeonholed. I thought that that would really limit me, especially as a person who for the majority of their career has been the only black person in the room. I mean, that's my existence. So that was part of it. Part of it is I didn't like the way diversity training had been done in the past. I felt that a lot of diversity training was an unnecessary guilt trip, right? It was all of you are, all of you white people are evil because you're not diverse and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, are there people that that applies to? Sure. But I also know that that's not the majority of people. Majority, the majority of people are good hearted with big blind spots. And to not address those blind spots is going to sabotage any effort because it's, it does no value for me to walk through the room and say you're all evil, especially if I don't believe it. That's just going to immediately cause resistance. But if I can destigmatize the conversation and say, okay, look, this is the reason I do unconscious bias first is it's not about your intent. I, I believe we're all good intentions. It's that we have blind spots and here's where they come up and here's how they impact people. And so you can have a blind spot and still be a good person. So let's now have this conversation. I think that's a really, really important part of it for me. I think the third thing that kept me from getting into it was I did not believe that most organizations really wanted to put in the effort to change. They wanted to just check the box and say, I did something. See, I, we had diversity training, so we're all good. And I didn't want to have my name and brand associated with that. So those are really the three areas. And I still feel strongly about all three of them. You know, and I, I still feel, even though there's a lot of work to be done in terms of inclusion and anti-racism, and you know, I want to make this abundantly clear, when I work with an organization, it's not just about race, right? For me, we're talking about gender, orientation, nationality, you know, it's, inclusion is all or nothing. Now, race is the problem that we have. Had we needed, needed to deal with for a long time in this country. So it's a priority, but I make it very clear, hey, this is about the whole thing. And it's not just about one race. We need to talk about our Asian brothers and sisters who are going through a lot right now. Talk about our Latinx brothers and sisters who are going through a lot right now. Our Middle Eastern who are being attacked. Those from the Arab nations. I mean, all of that really needs to be discussed, but clearly, you know, the Black issue is one that we have ignored for a long time. What have you found or do you think is a successful way to move people off the dime of wherever they're at, especially if they're not recognizing that where they're at is uh, where their ideas are regarding race and that may be problematic and they just aren't aware of it? What do you what do you find is a successful strategy for helping people to first of all, recognize it. And then secondly, do something about it. And that's useful in their own communities. Well, I think first looking at real statistics and numbers and metrics, that's the beauty of having been a chemical engineer is I really am data driven in many ways. And so when we can start saying, okay, it's one thing to say, you know, I feel like you know, we're a merit-based merit country and 
you know, really the issue about race or poverty. But then when you say, okay, but let's look at all of the actual studies, all of the numbers. Let's look at the fact that black boys and, black and white boys who grew up in the exact same economic situation have different economic outcomes. Let's look at health, you know, we, and I, there's just a myriad of stats that are really important, not only for learning, but for dealing with people's defense mechanisms, right? Quite often people have the defense mechanism of, well, I can't be racist, I have a black friend. Well, you know, that can be a really deep conversation we get into. But a statistic from the Public Religion Research Institute states that self-reported 70% of white people in America don't have a black friend. So that, that's a problem. Like, we need to actually hear that stat and deal with it. And the fact that black Americans are nine times more likely to have a white friend than white Americans a black friend. And then you start to see that there's a difference in perspective and in exposure. So, you know, those statistics are important, but statistics alone won't do it. I think stories are important too. And people share their stories, their narratives of what life is really like. I remember right after George Floyd, I'm in the National Speakers Association and our chapter had a meeting and uh, we had a panel of all black speakers and the facilitator asked, okay, how many of you have ever been racially profiled? All of us raise our hand. How many of you have ever been handcuffed? All of us raise our hand. How many of you have ever had a police officer point a gun at you? All of us raise our hand. Men and women. And now, now everyone else has to sit there and go, wait a second. I know you. You're, I, I wouldn't have thought that. You're, you don't fit the visual profile of what I think a person who goes through that looks like. Now you have to deal with that. You know, I'm dealing with another client. And you know, that was what came up when the African-American resource group was like, hey, all of you need to know, let us share some stories of our interaction, our reality, the time that I'm, you know, a person, PhD in some physics type thing. He goes, you know, and he's the most straight-laced person you can imagine. He goes, yes, face down on the pavement, handcuffed with guns in my head. You know, that this is, this is not some anomaly that we see on television, but the people that you know the people that you work with, the people that you go to church with, the people who are your neighbors, this is our reality. I think when people actually have to hear that, that changes it, changes it as, well, as well. So, yeah. So the fact that we're not, uh, I'll say I grew up like typical white bubble, I suppose I would say. And uh, so since my bubble doesn't interact with yours in any way, and my bubble did not include uh, persons of color, black or otherwise, I would not have experienced uh, firsthand any uh, knowledge of any of the kind of things you're describing. So it's only through your sharing them with me or my reading and uh, researching to discover that this reality that you describe is is pervasive. It's not something that somebody made up and it's not something that's just on the news. What are the kind of things that you would throw out as, you know, this is what my life is, uh, my daily situation is like relative to yours that would help me to understand that even on a daily basis now, you still see these things. 
Well, first, let me go to the past with one that's really extreme, and then I'll tie it into to some things that are recent. I'm a summer intern in college. I'm living in Charlotte. My boss and I go to Atlanta for the weekend, basically to party and entertain clients. You're going to be honest. That's what we really do, right? We go party all day, picking out clients, doing things. It's late. We got to get home. You know, it's a multi-hour drive from Atlanta to, to Charlotte. And so, you know, my boss is too drunk to drive. So I drive his car, right? We drive. One point, he's just tired. I'm like, okay, come on, kid. Let's stop. Get him some coffee. And I remember sitting there as he's drinking coffee, watching this police car drive around the parking lot. I mean, I remember clear as day. I mean, it just, it was just so out of the ordinary. Like, what is he looking for, right? Get back in the car. We're in the middle of Georgia. Pull out from Waffle House. We make it about two miles. We're in the middle of nowhere. We get pulled over. Cop pulls me out of the car. Tells me the car is stolen. We're going to jail. I'm going. No, not we. I'm going to jail. Now, I, I blank. I, I'm like, what? what do you mean I'm going to This is Ken's car. I immediately just start walking towards my boss, tell him, hey, you got to deal with it. And I hear the police officer saying, stop, come back here. And I just, I was like, no, he's going to deal with this. And, you know, he gets out, he's drunk. But, you know, he talks to the police officer. And a few minutes later, we're driving away. But as I'm sitting there and he's talking to the police officer, I realize what happened, right? Like, I, in all honesty, I'm not supposed to be alive right now. I mean, the plan was for me to vanish. And the fact that he, it's, I think he was as surprised as I was that I walked back to get my boss because I think had he been more aware, he probably would have shot me in the back. But that was, it was the intention of that moment that I would be taken away. My boss couldn't drive his car, so he'd have to, but by the time he sobered up, I wouldn't be found. That was the plan, okay? Now, fast forward, I have two sons. One is 23, one's 20. Both of them are about 6'4", okay? Oldest son, you know, doesn't drive. He's, uh, you know, he's living in upstate New York. He graduated cum laude from an Ivy League school. Youngest son is finishing culinary school at a very prestigious culinary school. Uh, Going to be graduating in August. Buy my son, my younger son, a car. Senior year, you know, Subaru, Impreza, you know, older. He gets pulled over. So he got pulled over three times the same week. He actually got pulled over for having an expired um, inspection sticker. Now, you have to understand this. He's... In the right lane, the police officer is across the street on the left side, pulls him over. The sticker itself is about two and a half inches by two and a half inches square. It's physically impossible for that officer to have seen that my son has an expired sticker. But pulls him, literally gets pulled over three times. We're in court half the time. Um, then we actually have to go to court because uh, we moved and they mailed a ticket one of these tickets to our old address 
it was returned. So now we had a court date, but surprisingly they sent the court date to our proper address. I mean, they knew where we lived the whole time, but this is what happened. This is actually exactly what happened to the young gentleman who was shot during the George Floyd trial, right? That he had a police warrant. And the reason he had a police warrant was because I can't remember if it was a traffic ticket or whatever, but it was sent to the wrong address. That's why there was a warrant for his arrest that people have tried to justify his shooting for. So, you know, I am concerned weekly for my son. My, my son is actually, he's been profiled and harassed by the police while going hiking with his friends. The police ask him if he has marijuana in his backpack or things of that nature. I mean, just, so that's kind of the extreme stuff, right? That's not me going to the hospital and having the doctor be dismissive of my symptoms. And because I have enough hospital clients, I know what to ask. But if I don't, I'm not going to be treated properly. You know, that's different than that's different than me being turned down for an apartment in New York City where both my wife and I each make enough income to qualify for the apartment. And I have like a 780 credit score. And the reason it's not eight because I just had a little bit of debt I wanted to pay off. But I wanted to wait until I got the apartment first. But he just, you know, it wasn't that we didn't qualify. He just didn't feel good about us. You know, that's normal. Like, that. Here, here's how normal it is. I live in Harlem now. I was uh, walking down, walking my dog, and these two teens come out of a corner store. We have tons of corner stores in New York City. That's like the thing, right? Called bodegas. Two teens come out of a bodega, you know, they got the spiked hair, kind of like I do right now because I'm post-COVID. <laughs> and, um, you know, they're coming out and they're being teens, right? And I hear the there's a police car at the corner and I hear him go, Rrr. and I'm like, what did he just say? I thought I knew what he said, but I wasn't sure. And the teens are looking at him like, what did you just say? And so they walk over to me like, excuse me, I'm sorry. And I goes, oh, happy new year. So it's new year, you know. And the relationship between police and people in Harlem is very different than a lot of other places. Um, and I'm very fortunate to be here. But I was very struck by the feeling that I had of being treated like normal citizens. Like, that's such a unique feeling. And it's not, because some people say, well, maybe, you know, talk about bias, maybe you're looking for it. No, 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 <laughs> no uh-uh, don't go there. That's that's a defense mechanism that you're trying to feed into. You got to deal with reality. It's like when I went to Toronto and one of my best friends who lived in Toronto uh, I was there for like five days and like the sixth day he called me, he goes, hey, what's up? You know, I'm doing spring break for my family. And he goes, so how is it? We were talking for a little bit. And then he, I said, you know what's weird? He goes, what? He goes, I didn't feel black when I was here. He goes, I was waiting <laughs> for you to say that. He goes, that's exactly my experience living here. It's just different. You, but The minute you cross the border, you feel the weight of that. And so, you know, it's a normal thing. My mom talks about the multiple times that she almost died at the hands of doctors, you know, it should have been taking care of her. Um, you know, it's, I, my mom, this is actually funny because I'll tell you my personality. 
my mom was recently sharing, she goes, you know, in college, when you'd have a bad day, you would either wear really dirty clothes and then go to the car dealership and try to buy a car, or you'd go <laughs> to the store and then you'd yell at the security when they would try to follow you around. Because I used to work at a retail store, so I know security the minute I see them. I'm like, dude, quit profiling me. I'm not sure. You work here. You know, I'm just, you know, that's what I would do now is having a bad day. Uh, sad to say. But that's so much our reality that we just we see it. Anymore. You know, I mean, it's just, you know, unfortunately, that's our reality. It was really interesting to recognize how how lacking I am, and I think the listeners in general, in really recognizing this uh, lived experience that you're describing that's an everyday thing for you. Yeah, and- let me jump in, if you don't mind. A couple of things I think that are helpful here. They, once you start to become aware, it's like, you know, awakening from the matrix. You start to see all of it, right? It's like I was yeah. having a conversation with uh, my old pastor, and he was just starting to see it. And so we were meeting at a diner, and I, I got there a little late. And so then we, you know, he was eating, I get there. And then about 15 minutes later, you know, the waitress brings water. He goes, huh, it took her like 15 minutes to bring you water. When I sat down, I got it within a minute. I mean, he just like, he started to see that. I think the other part and I appreciate what you just brought up about the questioning. So here's the thing I think people don't realize is that we're almost conditioned as Black people to realize when it is safe and when it is not to have these conversations. Right? Like, I, the times where I could share something and some, so what did you do or whatever, you know, this happened. And, you know, it goes back, you ever hear the phrase, a barrel of laughs? This phrase, it actually comes from slave days, right? Enslaved Africans could not express their emotions around white people, right? They, they couldn't, they couldn't express sorrow, even when slave owners were selling their children and se- literally taking their children away. If they cried, they were going to be punished for it. You know, I mean, it was they had to not cry, not to show that emotion. And yet they couldn't laugh either because that was considered sassy. So they had to, you know, sing spirituals and kind of have this uh, demeanor. And so they came up with what's called the barrel of laughs or the laughing barrel. It's literally a barrel filled with water that when a slave was overwhelmed with emotion, they would go and they would stick their head under the water and scream as loud as they can, but no one else could hear it. So it kept them from getting in trouble. And I think that there is a part where Very, even people who would consider themselves my friends know very few of these stories 
because rarely do they respond in a way where it's safe to tell them. Hmm. And I think that's one of the biggest lessons that we can have is if we really want to know, don't question people's reality when they share. Don't, because it's, what happens is because it's not our experience, right? If you've never, if all of your experiences with police have been positive, and the only time that you've seen the police respond in a negative way is when someone did something horrific. If someone else has a different experience, it's still there a different experience. Right. And when the victim feels like they're being blamed, they stop talking. And so then that, even in a greater way, that means it's even harder now for someone to know what my experience is because I've got to make sure they're safe for me to even tell. Right. I'm I'm struggling at times on this podcast, to be honest with you, with making sure that I am open to that and that I am addressing it in an appropriate way. And that's I have to tell you that's still a challenge uh, to some degree because I I guess because I'm white. So I'm I'm needing to uh, make those kind of adjustments that's still happening for me. That's why I talk about awakening rather than using the term woke. I'm not, I'm not woke. I'm awakening and it's a process and it's going to take a while. And I think that's true for most of us. So I'd like to also, um, I guess, shift this a little bit and ask if you feel like there's any signs that you see that racism will diminish generationally as America gets closer to whites no longer being the majority? Um, or do you think this demographic shift is actually increasing racism as whites unconsciously push back against the inevitable more diverse America? That's a reality that's happening. Yeah, B. <laughs> you know, if I'm going to be, I would love to go, oh, no, I think it's going to go down. No. Um, you know, unconsciously or subconsciously from the masses, but very consciously from leadership, right? That it is. Okay, I, I like that. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's, you know, a lot of the stuff does not exist for nothing. There are people, they're driving forces behind it. You know, I told some close friends about four or five years ago during the previous election, I said, you know, as the demographic shift and whites become a minority, the power structure will attempt to institute apartheid. Yeah. I absolutely 100% believe that. I think that this thing does not go down without a major, major fight. Um, and I think what's happened is many people who are able to say things covertly now have felt empowered to say it overtly. And so, you know, in, in, you know, it's, there's a lot of momentum behind it. So, you know, I would love to say I'm really optimistic, you know, maybe my grandkids, maybe, but the next decade or two is going to be rough. So you would describe that we may be in the dying throes of, of uh, whites becoming uh, 
are losing their being the majority in our society and that that has some ugly connotations to it um, that we're seeing some of right now. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, and, you know, I've, I'm really careful. You know, we're talking in black and white, so using the labels black and white, obviously knowing we're not saying all black or all white, right? That's, that's yeah, thank you. Inferred, but I just thought sometimes because of the language and people aren't used to hearing it this way, that it's important to say that. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of stuff ties back to race. I mean, it does. If you look at this recent push against abortion, especially in Southern states, right? There, a lot of it is in, is because, because Black and Latino or Latinx and other minority groups are having children at a much higher rate. I mean, there, there's some tie into it. It's not, it's not nearly as moral and ethical as it's often purported to be. There, there's some, there's some stuff to it, right? Um, and that's a whole we can get a religious kind of part of it that later if we want to. But a lot of this is fear. Yeah. And it's it's honestly fairly unsubstantiated fear. That's the part that's mind-blowing. There's like no real evidence or history of or signs that if whites are no longer a majority, that all of a sudden they're going to be oppressed. It's just, you know, and the truth is, if you go historically, especially the non-wealthy white people should be completely unified with Black and Latinx and Asian and every other group. Uh, and the reason it's not is because of fear. You know, it's, if you look at the slave uprisings that happened in early America, they were just slave uprisings. It was black slaves and white indentured servants that were uprising together to fight for freedom. And so there was a decision that we have to split these two groups up. We have to make interracial marriage illegal. We have to, there were certain laws that were instituted because of those types of uprisings so that we would be divided and not see our commonality. I mean, it was quite intentional. Would you agree that those fears are greatly rooted in the fact that you pointed out earlier, very few whites have a black friend, and yet the opposite isn't true. Most blacks have several white friends. And and unfortunately, I'm not sure there's there's no easy way to alleviate those fears other than education, conversation, getting to know people that don't look like you. The idea, what you just said is so important. Exposure is so critical. Like living in New York now is so different than growing up in Michigan. You know, I mean, it was my worldview has shifted. I understand um, the difference between Dominicans and Puerto Ricans and Colombians and Cubans. And, and these are things I had no understanding of. I understand so many different groups, plights. Um, I, I understand orientation in a way I never understood it. These things you know, you having the relationship is critically important. You can't be in any way underestimated. And it has to be done with intention because many of us won't do it naturally. It just, if we live in a bubble and you look at migration patterns in the United States, 
we're becoming more and more segregated. It's going to take more and more work to find people who are different than you. As we were winding our conversation down, here is Tony's response when I asked him how each of us could become more effective anti-racists in our own communities. Think first, increase your friend group. And I do think there's a difference between finding a black friend and finding friends who are black. I do think that there's a difference. It sounds like semantics, but it's easy to find a black friend and have that as your see I'm not a racist card versus yeah. building friend <laughs> groups. You know, I mean, just being honest, versus no, building I've... friend groups that are diverse, right? I, I've, I've diversified my friend group in huge ways. Uh, I think second, listening without judging or responding. That was the eye-opening part about the Me Too movement. In all honesty, it was, you know, with the percentage of my friends who are women and knowing what some of them go, go through, finding out how pervasive their experience was. That was eye-opening, right? It was, and I had to, you know, had to do the same thing that many of your white audience has to do with black people. I had to, in my mind, go take away that, yeah, but, but not me, not me, right? And I did feel like I'm an advocate for women. A lot of the stuff I haven't done, but even if I haven't done it, does not mean it's not happening all around me. And so just listening and, you know, when I'm wrong, this is the hard part. When you're wrong, just take it and say, I'm sorry. No explanations, no, yeah, but, but I'm a good person, and or all the other defense mechanisms that come up, would go, wow, I had no idea. I'm so sorry. And maybe sometimes, hey, I, I want to learn more. Can you help me understand this better? That goes a long way. That's gone a long way with my gay, lesbian friends, that's gone a long way with my Latinx friends, that's gone, you know, I start thinking, that's made a huge impact. I think three, having a couple people that hold you accountable, right? Like, how's it going? I've got certain friends that they're like, okay, how's it going in this area? And they have carte blanche to be able to say, okay, Tony, the way you responded to that person, Something was wrong. You need to go back and evaluate that. They may not say it in the moment because it would be embarrassing and I may get defensive, but they can, you know, in my car, on my side mirror, I have a little light. It's a blind spot indicator, right? Yeah. It's it's important. When that light goes off, I don't get mad. I don't go, doggone it, car quit telling me what to do, right? That I look at it as like, man, you're protecting me. Sometimes you need to look at accountability as, no, you're really looking out for my blind spots. I appreciate that. Like those three things can make a world of difference. You know, obviously we can read books. We need to read books. You know, look at who we follow on social media, who we connect with, all those things. But, you know, our personal experience and then kind of the, the big one, once, and it, this is honestly the reason I'm on this podcast, going to be honest, because you know, I was probably asked to be on five podcasts this week. I'm like, I do not have time to be on five podcasts this week. But it's once you start to awaken, awaken other people, right? 
that that's the thing. It's it's people will listen to you in a way that's different than how they'll listen to me. They just will. And so that's why I appreciate you doing this podcast and why I'm here. It's it's this is what needs to happen, right? It's this is and on my end, right? I need to be helping my friends who are like, I'm not sharing that message. Look, you, you have to step out in deep water and be vulnerable and share your experiences, even knowing that some people are going to reject it and some people are going to get defensive and some people are going to, but you've got to keep doing it because this is how we start bridging the gap. Talking about racism is just a really difficult thing for a lot of people to even do. And I appreciate your honesty with us today and your willingness to be open about a number of things and uh, just sharing some time with us. Uh, it's really gracious of you to be willing to uh, be on this podcast. And I thank you so much for your, for your time today. Thanks for having me. Keep doing what you're doing. What you just said about, you know, not talking about race, talking about racism doesn't make you a racist. These are the conversations we need to have. They're critical. And let, let me assure you, the people on the minority side want to happen. And they're often smart enough, shrewd enough, and nuanced enough to understand the difference between an honest mistake and intentional racism. People know. And so let's have the conversation and people will be pleasantly surprised where we come from. So for any of our um, listeners that might like to know more about you and the work that you do and so forth, uh, could you share a little bit where, where can they find you and how do they learn more about Tony Chapman? Best thing is my website, TonyChapman.com, C-H-A-T as in Tom, M-A-N. You can get to everything that I do through my website, www.TonyChapman.com. Thank you, Tony, so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. It was great uh, visiting with you, and I hope our paths cross again at some point down the road. Sounds good, Joe. Thanks so much for having me. If this My Awakening podcast episode was interesting and helpful to you, please share it with your friends and subscribe to be notified when our next episode is published. We'd love your feedback or questions for guests using our self-recording feature at the top of our website. Thank you again for listening, and please remember that together we can help move America closer towards liberty and justice for all. Come on and tell me something.